Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. They will rue the day they did it. Will they? Maybe. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Maybe not. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV, in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe Every day on your internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much. For joining us today, uh, and joining me and the delightful Desi Doyen today. Hello, Desiree. Hello, I am here. You am. <laughs> uh, you'll be joining us, of course, in a little bit with uh, our latest Green News Report. It's one of those days when when we have to look forward to the Green News Report for uh, an upside. And frankly, today's Green News Report... Not so much of an upside. Yeah, sorry, not uh, today. But, but hey, interesting stuff. Yes, it is interesting stuff. Uh, educational stuff. Uh, hopefully makes everyone become a better voter. And that is something that has been desperately missing uh, in, in the media of late uh, for quite a while, actually. We'll get to that in a moment. Big day, of course, in the U.S. House regarding the GOP tax scam. We'll get to that in a moment. But we like to put our corrections up front Whenever we have the chance and on the uh, broadcast on yesterday's broadcast, uh, working from what we had at the time, I think it was from Associated Press, but others had it as well. Uh, the uh, that uh, train derailment, that d- terrible train derailment up near Seattle. Uh, apparently, well, when we went to air, the report was there were six dead and some 50 injured. Some good news here, I guess. Um, yes. The numbers have been revised. Just three dead in yes. that uh, terrible disaster. Now, the National Transportation and Safety Board has not quite confirmed that officially, but it does seem to be that the death toll is now only three. But there were 70 people hospitalized mm. from the 83 people who were on that train. Mm. Um, and there's also some new information coming out as the NTSB does its investigation. It does appear initially that the data requirements 
recorder on the train, very similar to an airplane tr- mm-hmm. uh, data recorder, right. indicates that the train was going 80 miles per hour on a 30 mile per hour curve. Now, remember, this was the inaugural run on this track. This was a brand new track and a brand new route. So there will be. So an despite inv- what Donald Trump said, is this proves that we need to pass my infrastructure plan, which he doesn't actually have one. But not yet. Yes. Uh, despite what he said, uh, this does not prove that we need to pass his infrastructure plan because this was a brand new track. <laughs> exactly, because okay. this was a brand new track. Now, one issue that is coming out on this is that it appears that this brand new track did have a thing called positive train control installed on it. That's a new fancy uh, safety feature that actually automatically slows down or stops a train if the positive train control system recognizes that the train is going too fast, for example, when it's approaching a curve. So it had this system? It had the system installed on the track, but the positive train control was not activated on this track. Why? Uh, we don't know yet. They say it was still in testing. Of course, this will all this is all very preliminary, very initial, so we'll get more information mm. as the investigation continues. But the scary thing about the positive train control is this was mandated by Congress more than 10 years ago after a series of very dangerous and very deadly train mm-hmm. accidents yeah. that had occurred. So you know, positive train control. Congress said you guys have to install this not just on the passenger trains, but on the freight trains as well. Amtrak has been slow to roll it out because Amtrak has been chronically strapped for cash, unable to keep up with the cost of installing it. And that's basically because Congress keeps cutting their budget. Mm. Well, and that sort of brings us to our main story, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, the, you know, the stuff that we need, the stuff that saves people's lives, uh, like positive train control. We don't have money for that, but for uh, tax cuts for the obscenely wealthy, no problem. Plenty of money there. The Tea Party class of 2010. Remember them? They vowed to usher in a new era for the Republican Party, one where conservatives, so-called conservatives clamoring for fiscal discipline, would roll back government spending to rein in the the trillion-plus budget deficits. Not anymore, apparently, notes Andrew Taylor over at AP. Uh, This article, uh, this analysis of his comes out today after passage of what was supposed to be the final version of the massive Republican tax legislation in the U.S. House. It now looks like they may have to vote again on Wednesday, but I'll get to that in a second. Taylor writes, Republicans are returning to their Ronald Reagan era roots. Tax cuts first followed by vague promises of cutting spending down the road. Concerns about growing budget deficits have been shelved as Republicans controlling Washington focus instead on delivering tax breaks along with spending increases for the military. Yeah, that does sound familiar, doesn't it? Now, I largely agree with uh, most, if not all, of what Taylor writes in this piece, but I note that it comes out after the largest redistribution of wealth from the poor and middle class to corporations and the wealthy wealthy uh, is is seemingly now all but a done deal. Remember when those folks, uh, the, those those Tea Party folks, when they used to be against government redistribution of wealth? Well, I guess I guess they only had an objection to redistributing uh, from the wealthy to the poor and the middle class. The other way around, apparently, they're cool with that. But where were all these uh, AP analyses, uh, you know, these stories about the Tea Party being defied by their own leaders 
as this tax scam was being put together. And for that matter, where were the Republicans elected as part of that Tea Party class of 2010? Those supposed foes of budget deficits. Where were they when it came to voting on this measure in the House on Tuesday? Of course, as we've been telling you since before the way before the, the, the Tea Party wave in 2010, the, uh, the Tea Party was never anything more than a scam. It was meant to get Republicans elected. Republicans uh, in power knew that at the time, and they played, played these people for suckers, chumps, and pansies. And the corporate media, too. They played them like fiddles. Well, they played them, and you're right, the corporate media went along with it. That, oh, these are taxed enough already, and you know they're against uh, the budget deficits. They're for fiscal discipline. If that was the case, if they were for fiscal discipline, then I suspect we would see, uh, you know, Glenn Beck and his uh, millions of followers out having another uh, protest about this tax scam at the Lincoln Memorial. For some reason, they're not showing up. Anyway, they pretended to be against deficit spending back then in uh, in 2010 when they created the Tea Party. They told those Tea Party people that that they were in favor of fiscal discipline. And of course, those chumps, dupes and suckers went for it, bought it hook, line and sinker. But only when Democrats were doing the spending and only when Democrats had to do the spending because Republican fiscal policies had plunged the globe into an economic crisis and a great recession. Remember that? Back to Andrew Taylor at AP here. Uh, GOP leaders insist that they have that they have not abandoned their desire to confront trillion-dollar deficits. Looking toward 2018, House Speaker Paul Ryan has raised the prospect of tackling benefit programs with the spike in the deficit caused by the GOP tax overhaul already now being used to justify a potential round of austerity next year. That's right. They will be telling us that we must cut these programs for people who need these programs because, wow, look at that deficit that we just caused. For now, however, writes Taylor, the clear winners are the rich, Corporations and businesses who benefit from these tax cuts. But if Republicans fail again in their promises to wrestle the budget under control, he writes, the joke will be on the Tea Party base that thought it was voting for fiscal conservatism. That joke is already upon the Tea Party base. Are you kidding me? The budget deficit, which registered $660 billion in the 2017 budget year, is set to soar even higher fueled by these tax cuts and disaster relief, uh, which is total uh, to, to, to breach 130 billion if it passes uh, and more is needed for disaster relief from what global warming. That's right. But, you know, that doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump took that out of his uh, out of his what is it? National strategy, national uh, security uh, strategy, yeah. which we will be talking about later in the Green News report. Right. Uh, the good news, though, uh, global warming is no longer a threat to the country. Magic. That's what he told us. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, these uh, you know long promised uh, budget increases for the military. All of this is blowing the blowing a hole in the deficit. Trillion dollar deficits loom before the end. Trillion dollar deficits loom. 
before the end of Donald Trump's term, which has Republicans already planning a pivot to long-promised curbs on government benefit programs like food stamps, Medicaid, Medicare. Congressman Mark Sanford, uh, head of the, uh, what do they call it now, the Freedom Caucus, used to be called the Tea Party Caucus, but they abandoned that for some reason. Now it's the Freedom Caucus. They used to call themselves the Tea Baggers. Yeah, well, they did, (laughs) and so did we. Uh, anyway, he's uh, a member of the uh, so-called deficit hawk wing. He's actually, I think, the leader of that Freedom Caucus. On Tuesday, he said there is no way out. The tax bill that he voted for, by the way, he said the tax bill is, in essence, the nail in the coffin on driving the absolute mathematical necessity of reform to entitlement programs. You can't have both, he said. He admitted it out loud. And then, of course, he, he voted for the uh, for the tax cuts anyway, knowing uh, of, about what he describes as this mathematical necessity of reform to entitlement programs. They know that this is the plan. This is what they plan to do. Or perhaps uh, Mark Sanford voted for it uh, anyway, because uh, specifically because it would give them further permission as they see it, to cut programs for people who uh, who need them. People who need, you know, stuff like health care, including some 13 million Americans who will lose health care coverage altogether under this measure, according to all of the nonpartisan uh, analyses. And everyone else will see their monthly premiums go up for health care some 10 percent because of it. That rather than, you know, God forbid, not give huge tax cuts to millionaires and billionaires and corporations that are already enjoying record profits. Or God forbid, even more, cutting our bloated war making machine. A small cut to which would mitigate pretty much any and all of these uh, concerns about spending to, uh, you know, for things that actually mind the general welfare of Americans. Paul Ryan uh, told reporters last week uh, uh, that uh, next year, next year will bring GOP efforts to change our welfare laws. So the House has now approved the one and a half trillion dollar Republican tax bill. They have now approved the most sweeping tax rewrite in decades, and they've done so along party lines with uh, almost no input whatsoever from Democrats, certainly no votes from Democrats. Lawmakers voted 227 to 203 in the House to pass this thing. There were just 12 Republican defectors, all from New York, New Jersey and California, with the exception of Walter Jones from North Carolina. But taxpayers in those three states, New York, New Jersey, California, they're going to get soaked by the removal of federal deductions for state taxes uh, due to the high state taxes in New York, New Jersey and California, which all tend to vote for Democrats. So the Republicans don't much care. The action now moves to the Senate, which is expected to vote on the bill, possibly by Tuesday evening, Uh, though a hiccup might now send that measure back to the House for one more vote in either case. Uh, President Trump, barring some remarkable Christmas miracle, is still expected to sign the bill into law before the holiday. Uh, House Speaker uh, Paul Ryan of Wisconsin on the House floor said that the vote was a turning point. He said, this is our chance. This is our moment. 
What do you think he was talking about? Chance for what? When the bill passed the House, a giddy Mr. Ryan uh, smiled broadly, banged the gavel with force and gusto as he uh, as he declared victory in the House. He might have been premature as far as that goes. Uh, it looks like uh, Democrats, uh, well, it looks like the House is going to have to approve it again. They're going to have to do it all again on Wednesday. Democrats uh, say that three provisions in the Republican uh, tax bill violate Senate rules, the rules that allow Republicans to pass this with just a minimum of 50 votes instead of 60 votes under the uh, filibuster l- rules. And because of those uh, three provisions, that means that the bill is likely going to have to be uh, removed, th- those provisions will be removed uh, before the Senate votes on the measure, and then the House, which approved the legislation on Tuesday, will have to vote again on the legislation once it has been amended and approved by the U.S. Senate. Senate passage uh, is expected, as I said, on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. GOP House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy Uh, His office says the House would reconsider the bill Wednesday morning and send it to Donald Trump for his signature shortly thereafter. Democrats say the parliamentarian had found three different items that violated those rules, including one provision that would let families use tax-advantaged 529 accounts for homeschooling expenses. Those problems were revealed by Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders and Oregon Democrat Ron Wyden. Under the bill approved by the House, the corporate tax rate will be cut to 21% from the current 35%, damn near cutting corporate taxes in half, which Republicans are betting will increase economic growth. Good luck. Individuals will also see tax cuts, uh, including a top uh, top rate of 37%, down from 39.6%. So all of those rich people who are having uh, such a tough time struggling, good news for them. But the individual tax cuts will expire after 2025 with the cuts for the uh, wealthy, record, profitable corporations. Those will be permanent. It bears noting, uh, writes Taylor, that uh, Republicans have promised spending cuts to These uh, social services for years, the triumphant 2010 Tea Party class of GOP lawmakers who took control of the House at that point ran on fiscal discipline, demands for austerity. But cuts in domestic programs such as food stamps or housing uh, really, in truth, won't make a mathematical dent in the $20 trillion debt that future generations will bear. And any potential savings from so-called welfare reform are dwarfed in any event by the $1.5 trillion or more deficit tag for this tax measure. So even if, it, even if they made these cuts, it's unlikely they would reach $1.5 trillion worth. Brian Rydell, a senior fellow at the conservative Manhattan Institute, said once you cut taxes, it's real hard to turn around and tell people that you have to cut spending due to fiscal responsibility. Benefit reform was hard before the tax cuts, he said. It'll be nearly impossible after. Yes, especially since now, presumably, it'll take 60 votes, not 50, to do it. 
Here's how Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi described the legislation in her unsuccessful argument against it on Tuesday in the U.S. House. We remember our duty to live justly. And for those of us blessed to serve in this Congress, we must remember our special responsibility to govern fairly, to meet the needs of all of God's children. In this holy time, the moral obscenity and unrepentant greed of the GOP tax scam stands out even more clearly. As the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops said early on, this proposal appears to be the first federal income tax modification in American history that will raise income taxes on the working poor while simultaneously providing a large tax cut to the wealthy. My colleagues, is there justice in a bill that rewards corporations shipping jobs overseas? Is there justice in a bill that raises taxes on 86 million middle-class families? And they try to present the delusion that it's a middle-class tax cut. Is there justice in a bill that hands a breathtaking 83% of its benefits to the wealthiest 1% of Americans? Is there justice in a bill that explodes the national debt to give the wealthy and the well-connected a break and sticks the debt with our children? Is that justice? This GOP tax scam is simply theft, monumental, brazen theft from the American middle class and from every person who aspires to reach it. That was Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi speaking on Tuesday against that GOP tax scam, as she characterizes it. Uh, all of this notes Andrew Taylor's replay of experience under previous presidents like Ronald Reagan and uh, former President George W. Bush, who had pushed through tax cuts in 2001 and 2003. But then when the agenda turned to cutting spending to make up for the deficits caused by those tax, uh, those uh, those tax cuts, well, they never they never got around to doing that. In the bargain, however, in the 2006 midterms, after those tax cuts, the GOP president and Republicans lost control of the House and the Senate. So will that happen again in 2018? Or will the electorate forget about it all by then? Or will they see a few more dollars uh, potentially in their paycheck and decide that Republicans are to thank for it, not knowing that uh, that that money will soon disappear by Republican design? For the record, according to a new report from Tax Policy Center, the bottom quintile uh, will get about $1 a week more in their paycheck, while the top 1% will get $1 Every 10 minutes. So this seems like a good issue for Democrats to run on in 2018. But will they be afraid yet again to take on the rich or appearing to be taking on the rich for for fear of being accused, as Bernie Sanders was, even by Democrats, of launching class warfare? No matter how popular, by the way, class warfare actually is at least with the voters, if not with the donor class, that, yes, Democrats still rely on as well. That story is next as we're joined by Boston University researcher Spencer Piston. Next on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Yeah, why not? Trump's, Trump's theme song. Seems only fair to play it today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, the final Republican tax bill passed on Tuesday in the U.S. House along party lines. The uh, Senate may vote for it on Tuesday night, where it's also expected to pass similarly. As we go to air, the news that it may have to be passed once again in the U.S. House after they're needing to make some changes to meet Senate rules. Uh, But it looks like it's going to pass one way or another before the holiday. The bill will see its largest benefits by far going to the wealthiest households in America, according to a new analysis. The Tax Policy Center, which analyzed the final bill, said that uh, taxpayers in the bottom quintile With less than $25,000 in income, they will get an average tax cut of $60, or 0.4% of after-tax income, which, you know, they can use to remodel their kitchen or make a down payment on a new car with that $60 extra that they'll get back on their taxes in 2019. Those in the middle income quintile earning anywhere from forty nine to eighty six thousand, they'll receive an average tax cut of nine hundred dollars or one point six percent of average tax income. Those earning between eighty six and one hundred and forty nine thousand will see uh, an average cut of eighteen hundred or one point nine percent of after tax income and taxpayers with income. Uh, about uh, three between about three hundred and eight thousand dollars a year and seven hundred and thirty three thousand dollars a year will see an average tax cut of about thirteen thousand five hundred or four point one percent of average of after tax income. So the more you make, not only do you get back more on your taxes, you get back a higher percentage of your tax dollars back. It pays to be wealthy. Taxpayers in the top 1% of the income distribution, those with income more than 733000 would receive an average, just an average, of $51,000 a year. Well, they need it. They deserve it. While the bill has changed several times since it originally was introduced in the House and Senate, the basic scheme remains the same, according to Howard Gleckman, a senior fellow at the Tax Policy Center, He says that most households would get a tax cut at first with the biggest benefits by far going to those with the highest incomes. But after 2025, when nearly all of the bill's individual income tax provisions will expire, only high income people would continue to get a meaningful tax cut, just as the Republicans apparently want it. So much for Donald Trump's pretend campaign as a populist looking out for the little guy against the corporate fat cats who have been taking advantage of of the tax code for years. Remember, he used to say that over and over again out on the campaign trail and so much for his uh, his promise that he and his rich friends would not be benefiting from these cuts. The rich, like Trump himself and his family, 
will all be making out big league, as he would say, from the bill which is on track to be signed by the president before the holiday weekend. Some holiday, unless you're already and now about to get much, much richer. Republicans might be preparing to celebrate the passage of this scheme. But every day, taxpayers are not yet popping the champagne bottles. A new poll from CNN and SSRS found that the tax legislation continues to be very unpopular with the general public, with just about 33 percent of Americans supporting this measure and a majority, 55 percent, opposing it. Opposition to the bill has jumped by 10 percentage points since just early November, they find, with more people thinking that they will be worse off after the tax bill is signed into law and a majority of people, correctly, I'm happy to say, thinking that the tax cuts will favor the rich rather than the middle class. Still, while an overwhelming majority of Democrats, 95 percent of them, said that they think the bill will favor the wealthy, just 27 percent of Republicans think the same. That means that the rest of the Republicans, some 73 percent of Republican voters, think that the tax scheme will somehow benefit the middle class or maybe they're just OK with it benefiting the wealthy and they don't want to admit as much to pollsters. We have a long recent history in this country of tax cuts that overwhelmingly help the rich over the poor and the middle class, despite the majority of Americans who want just the opposite. Republicans seem to get away with this again and again despite the wishes of the majority of American voters and despite the fact that it never does, that these tax cuts never do what Republicans claim that they will do. Writing at The Nation this week, Spencer Piston and Sean McElwee observe a substantial majority of Americans believe that the rich, that rich people ought to pay more in taxes, not less. For example, they cite... The public opinion about the so-called Buffett rule, named after the uh, its most prominent backer, billionaire investor Warren Buffett, uh, that the change that that change to the tax code should require all millionaires to pay at least 30 percent of their income in taxes. One recent poll completed by the Global Strategy Group shows that 86 percent of registered voters, that would include 74 percent of Trump voters. Support that idea. Support the Buffett rule that millionaires ought to pay at least 30 percent. More generally, however, 82 percent of voters, including almost 70 percent of Trump voters, actually support hiking taxes on the richest one percent. Surveys with nationally representative samples of the public also show that public support for increased taxes on the rich is very high and has been for decades. Why then have taxes on the rich decreased so much over the last few decades, Piston and McElway ask? Well, and they wonder how how is it possible that congressional Republicans are on the verge of passing this tax bill that is an obvious tax cut for the very wealthy? Both of those are good questions. Here to answer them, hopefully, is the co-author of that report in The Nation. Spencer Piston is an assistant professor of political science at Boston University, where he focuses on the politics of racial inequality and economic inequality in the U.S. and the role of the mass public in perpetuating or mitigating inequality. He's got a Ph.D. in political science from the University of Michigan, and he is the author of the upcoming book, Class Attitudes in America. Spencer Piston, welcome to the broadcast, sir. 
Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you here. Your upcoming book on class attitudes in America looks at at, at various academic studies on all of these issues, uh, how it happens that we see these uh, tax cuts over and over again, despite not being particularly popular, and how Republicans seem to just keep getting away with the same thing over and over again. Uh, with the same playbook over and over again. Your article at The Nation cites, for example, data from the Tax Policy Center finding that 62% of the benefits of these tax cuts that are now, uh, looks like they're going to be a done deal by Christmas, that 62% of those benefits accrue to the top 1% of earners, and that blows away the numbers from George W. Bush's tax cut uh, tax cuts that uh, gave just 27% of the benefits to the top 1%. We saw, everyone saw, I think, how the economy tanked under George W. Bush. So how how do the how do they let the rich keep getting richer and everybody else does not? And and the GOP is now tripling down on what the what George W. Bush did. How do they keep getting away with this, Spencer? Well, it's an excellent question and. Uh there's a common assumption out there that in a democratic political system, the desires of the public should guide public policy. And mm-hmm. in some cases, that's certainly true. But in many cases, the opinions of the public have very little to do with uh, the policy outcomes that actually occur. And this is no exception. Americans have desired higher taxes on the rich for decades. And yet, fairly consistently, albeit with some notable exceptions, Um, Taxes on the rich over the past few decades have plummeted. So the reason that this happens is um, policymakers who don't want to do what majorities of the public want follow a playbook of confuse, distract, and ignore. So when they try to attempt to confuse the public, Mm -hmm. the idea here is to hide the fact that the benefits of a policy accrue mostly to the rich. So when you hear about the estate tax possibly hurting small businesses. That canard has been repeated for decades, and Mm -hmm. for good reason. It's trying to obscure the fact that only multimillionaires are subject to the estate tax. And that strategy has worked uh, pretty well. Um, Most Americans are ignorant of the fact that the federal estate tax only affects large inheritances. Yeah, and and just just before you get to the second strategy, I just want to sort of underscore that point, because currently... Even before this new bill uh, gets put in place, the, the, the law, as I understand it, on estate uh, taxes, it only taxes estates larger than $5.5 million. This bill, I think, will exempt estates up to $11 million. The Republicans would love to get rid of the, uh, that tax altogether. But, uh, you know, how many people leave $5.5 million behind when they die? And yet... Uh, the people seem to think that this tax should be repealed. It's unpopular. Uh, th- they want to do away with it. Trump was touting this thing as, you know, we need we need to get rid of the estate tax or at least increase the, the exemption, quote, to protect millions of small businesses and the American farmer. That is wildly untrue, is it not, Spencer? It is untrue. It's a strategic inaccuracy meant to... Um depress public opinion for the estate tax, and my research indicates that that strategy is successful. Among those people who know that only millionaires are subject to the estate tax, the tax is much more popular. So once they hear that, once they're informed that, I mean, is that uh, when it's explained to the people, uh, they oppose it? Is the media, are the media to blame here then for not 
making these sorts of provisions, which seems sort of arcane and in the weeds, but not making, uh, not helping the electorate to understand what this actually, what these things actually mean. In some cases, yes, the media have repeated this uh, falsehood that many small businesses would be subject to the estate tax. Although in other cases, the media are, are certainly more responsible. Okay, so I cut you off. You were saying uh, first, uh, f- first try to confuse the public. So uh, check mission accomplished there to some uh, some degree. Yeah, the second strategy often used is to distract and to focus on alternative considerations. So uh, people who want government programs to transfer resources to the rich mm-hmm. know that this isn't going to be popular, and so they try to focus on other aspects of a policy. So the common uh, way to frame the estate tax is to call it a death tax. The logic being that death seems like a poor time to tax. Mm -hmm. And indeed, my research finds that when you describe the tax as a death tax, it does, in fact, become less popular. Mm -hmm. So although the real goal is to transfer resources upward to the rich, um, the the strategy to pursue this goal is to refer to it in different terms so people will focus on it, and not in terms of its class, impact, but in terms of something else entirely. Uh, What? I mean, how do you take something like that and, and, I mean, that's what they do? They just basically say that this is not what it seems to be, it is something else, and let's hire Frank Luntz and get him to come up with new words to describe these things? Well, it's to avoid the issue of how the um, tax affects the rich altogether. So if you look at the proponents of the tax, mm-hmm. the supporters of uh, the, the current tax bill, mm-hmm. they could describe it as, hey, these are job creators. These are people, these are people who deserve more money. No. But that's not what they do, and that's because they know it's a losing argument. Instead, they'll describe it as tax reform or as making something simpler so that people can understand it, or they can talk about it as getting rid of the death tax and helping millions of small businesses mm-hmm. we talked about earlier. All this is in service of disguising it's class implications of the fact that it transfers resources to the rich. Now, sometimes this is all explained away uh, by the media, largely, that, oh, Americans, they, they want to become rich someday, so they don't mind this sort of thing because they think they're going to benefit from this at the end. Uh, you know, they want to join the rich. They don't want to soak the rich, I think, as you uh, noted in your article. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the research you find uh, that you looked at uh, for your upcoming book finds just the opposite, that that Americans, that Americans do want to soak the rich. That's right. It is true that some Americans overestimate their own upward mobility. It is true that some Americans view rich people as job creators who deserve their wealth and must have worked hard to get where they are. Mm-hmm. But those folks are the exception rather than the rule. The rule in American public opinion is one of resentment for the rich. Most of the public feels that rich people have more than they deserve, mm-hmm. and government should stop giving them special tax breaks. So, uh, with that in mind, then, um, h- how do we explain the broad support for uh, you know things like repealing the estate tax and, and and all of these other tax cuts among Republican uh, voters in particular? Are they just confused? Are they misinformed? Uh, or do they want to believe that someday that they will be rich and they'll get the benefits of this? Well, um, a few things are happening here. One is that um, when it comes to the estate tax, mm-hmm. absolutely folks, and not just Republicans, are confused about who benefits mm-hmm. and who is victimized by the estate tax. 
and they're distracted, focusing on other considerations, such as thinking of it as a death tax. But there are cases in which Republicans and Democrats alike uh, support higher taxes on the rich. As you mentioned at the beginning, this particular policy that, that is passing as we speak is one of the most unpopular pieces of legislation uh, since the dawn of polling data. So there are cases where all the efforts to confuse and distract are not successful, and that's even often true among uh, Republican voters whose elites are the ones uh, trying to pass the thing. And and yet, as you note, uh, Spencer Piston, it's one of the most, if not the most, unpopular uh major piece of legislation in, I think, going back at least 30 years, if not longer, they see that, they can read those numbers, they don't care. They're moving forward with it anyway. The confuse them strategy does not seem to have worked, at least with a majority of Americans. So uh, what happens next, and why do they feel that they can uh, consistently move forward with uh, policies that are so unpopular? Yeah, well, the third strategy in the playbook that I talked about earlier is not really a strategy at all. It's simply to just ignore the wishes of the American public. And this is most likely to happen when somebody's donor base or their um, interest group base, when that kind of uh, base for a politician runs crossways to the preferences of the public. And then the politician has to decide, do I go with party leadership, do I go with my donor base, or do I go with what the public wants? And usually the calculation, I think, is one of electoral self-interest. What's going to get me elected next time around? And I think many folks calculated that the cost of defying their donors, the cost of defying the super wealthy, and the cost of defying their party leadership were greater than the cost of defying public opinion. Because when the next election goes around, Mm -hmm. the public at large may have forgotten what happened in recent days, but the donors and the party leadership will not have forgotten. And and you feel that's true, even though we're on the cusp of an election year. We just saw what happened in uh, in Alabama, where the state of Alabama, for crying out loud, turned against the Republican. I could understand that argument, uh, you know, for for uh, for members of the House who are representing these wildly gerrymandered districts. They think they'll be okay. They've fooled enough of the Republicans, maybe, to survive this, but. Uh, senators have to be looking at what ha- you know. Senators who are up for, for re-election in 2018 have to be looking at what happened in Alabama. They have to be looking at these poll numbers. Are, they are just counting on the American electorate forgetting this by November of next year. Is or uh, is our collective memory that that short? And isn't it the Democrats' responsibility to remind the electorate of all of this come November? Well, I think the last point is an excellent one. Um, It's not clear whether the American public will forget and whether or not the American public will decide to vote based on whether or not their representative uh, voted to increase uh, tax cuts for the rich. But it's possible that the American public will be reminded. That depends on the media, that depends on social movements, and yes, that depends on the Democratic Party. So it's an open question whether or not the strategic decision made by individual Republican politicians will prove to be successful or not. You uh, argue, essentially, if I'm reading your uh, piece at The Nation with uh, Sean McElwee correct, that essentially Democrats should run against the rich, that that's very popular, that ultimately, even uh, among uh, Trump voters, 
the rich are not popular. The idea of running against them, the idea of, of raising their taxes is actually far more popular. Well, I, I, we saw Bernie Sanders uh, try to do that. And uh, and both the uh, Republicans, as expected, but also the Democrats charged that, you know, he was he was running class warfare. And, you know, they sort of went after him for that, including the Democrats. Uh, what 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 will what will uh, make the Democrats uh, see the light here and uh, appreciate some of the research that that you find that says, I think you're saying that, yes, in fact, they should run against the rich as a party. Is that right? Well, um, in terms of what would be the best strategy, there is certainly a benefit to running against the rich, which is that it's easier to get the public on your side. But it's not as easy to get donors on your side. Mm-hmm. I do think the Clinton versus Sanders um, contest was illustrative. Yes, Bernie Sanders lost, but um, what was the real surprise was that he was in the race in the first place. Mm. His bid was described as a long shot, and Clinton was the presumptive nominee. It's kind of crazy that this kind of former independent, uh, elderly, self-described socialist, mm-hmm. pretty obscure, strange candidate out of Vermont made such a deep run at the Democratic nomination. Right. Yes, he was accused of class warfare, but I don't think that criticism really stuck. I think people liked him because he was so anti-rich. Mm. Now, he didn't have the same donor base. He didn't have the support of the DNC. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a number of other weaknesses in his candidacy. But I think his deep run at the Democratic nomination shows the potential of running against the rich for Democratic candidates. And so, and mind you, it's possible for Republican candidates to do the same. They're not doing it at the moment, but it is, it is a possibility. Well, uh, so your argument seems to be that if you had a candidate who did not have uh, the various downsides that Bernie had, uh, you know, his his age, the idea that he was a quote unquote democratic socialist, which is, of course, a big red flag word. But if you had someone uh, who didn't have that and, and who and who was didn't have to run uphill against a, a presumptive nominee like Hillary Clinton, that somebody could take Bernie's ideals, ideas uh, and in fact, run. I don't want to use a class warfare. Call it class warfare because that seems Frank Luntzian. But uh, uh, run, as you say, against the rich, and uh, that 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 could be a successful strategy for whether it's a Democrat in 2020 for president or anyone running for the for the House or the Senate in 2018. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, but Democrats seem to be scared to death of that idea. Is that my imagination, or do you see that as well? Or is it just scared? they're just scared because of uh, what it will do to their donor base? I think there are two things going on. Yes, part of it is you, you stand alert to lose the support of, of rich people if mm-hmm. you run against the rich, and that absolutely is something some Democrats are worried about. But I also think that some Democrats are buying into the myth that a lot of us have fed them that Americans want to join the rich, not soak them, that the rich are widely admired. And that's one of the reigning myths we tell ourselves about American politics and American culture. Mm. But uh, it's becoming increasingly clear to Democrats, and partly from learning the lesson of Bernie Sanders, that uh, many Americans are anti-rich and that running against them is, at least with the public at large, a winning strategy. Run Against the Rich. Uh, Spencer Piston, uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Boston University, author of the upcoming book, Class Attitudes in America. Uh, When is that out, Spencer? Not in time for Christmas, apparently. Uh, Coming out soon? 
one out in March of 2018 at Cambridge University Press. All right, Spencer. Thank you so much. I hope you'll uh, stay in touch. We'll talk about it more when uh, when the book comes out. Maybe sell a few of them. Spencer Piston, uh, you can follow his work at spencerpiston.com on the Twitters at Spencer Piston. And, of course, we will link over to his article at The Nation with Sean McElwee, How Do Politicians Get Away with Cutting Taxes for the Rich? Really appreciate you joining us today, Spencer. Thanks for having me, Brad. You bet. Have a great holiday. All right, quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Yeah. Something about chestnuts roasting over an open fire uh, is occurring to me here. I don't know why. Uh, although uh, these open fires continue in California now for a second straight week as we cover along with much more. Oh, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from <laughs> Bradblog.com as we cover in our latest Green News Report. It was not a happy week in Atlanta's airport. Atlanta airport blackout exposes serious vulnerabilities in nation's transportation systems. Fast-growing winter wildfire in California, now third largest in state history. Study finds climate change already wreaking havoc on our weather. Plus... The first duty of our government is to serve its citizens. Unless that requires acknowledging climate change, which Trump just removed from the list of national security threats. All of those not-yet-removed threats and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. To seize the opportunities of the future, we must first understand the failures of the past. I'm thinking we must first understand the failures of the present, Mr. President. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, what went wrong at the Atlanta airport. Well, that is still under investigation, but electricity has been restored to Atlanta's Hartsfield Jackson International Airport, one of the nation's busiest airports, after that blackout on Sunday trapped travelers on planes and in airport terminals for 11 hours, mm. triggering cascading cancellations of nearly 1,200 flights. Officials say that an electrical fire at an underground Georgia Power Electrical facility seems to have knocked out both 
the airport's main power and its backup electrical system, which was located in the same facility. Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed on Monday said a full investigation is underway. There is no evidence to suggest that the fire was caused deliberately. Even so, we're taking this matter extremely seriously uh, and making sure uh, that after this fire event occurred, uh, that the airport is safe and secure. Seems like having all of the electronics, including the backups, in one place is not very safe or secure. That's right, and national security experts agree with you. They warn that the airport blackout incident highlights the fragility of the U.S. transportation system where a single failure at a single airport in a single southeastern city had cascading economic and logistical ripple effects that went across the entire system. Mm, and the entire nation. In California, the Thomas Fire in coastal Ventura County has now grown to become the third largest wildfire wildfire in state history. The massive fire has spread now to Santa Barbara County, prompting new evacuations. More than 8,000 firefighters are battling the blaze that has now been burning for more than two weeks, driven by high winds and drought, and that's already destroyed nearly 800 homes. And not just in California, the 2017 wildfire season may go down as the worst on record globally, with unusually high fire levels in many parts of the world, with extensive and severe fires occurring in Chile, the Mediterranean, Russia, the U.S., Canada, and even Greenland. According to scientists at the American Geophysical Union conference this week, this year's total burned area globally is about three times the average acreage burned over the last decade. Wow. Meanwhile, back in 2015, President Obama called climate change a national security threat in his annual national security strategy. Climate change constitutes a serious threat to global security, an immediate risk to our national security. And make no mistake, it will impact how our military defends our country. I miss that guy. (laughs) Uh, By the way, it's already having that impact, obviously, if you look at all of the storms and all of the fires that we've had uh, in just the past few months. Indeed. But in a major break with U.S. military leaders, President Donald Trump on Monday Who? removed climate change from that list of threats to the nation in the annual national security strategy. Because, of course, he did. Yep. Of course, removing climate change from the list does not magically make it go away. Just last week, Trump signed the National Defense Authorization Act, containing a law large section in which current and former U.S. military leaders warn of the threat that climate change poses to national and international security. So one day he signs a document that says climate change is a grave threat to national security. Two days later, climate change is not a grave threat to national security. Exactly. Not insane at all. Finally, right on cue, researchers writing in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society analyzed 27 extreme weather events that occurred around the world in 2016. They found that human-caused climate change was a significant driver for 21 of them, from extreme heat events to record coral bleaching to extreme rainfall events and flooding disasters. The researchers said the 21 events almost certainly would not have occurred without man-made global warming. And the insanity continues. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. 
I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. The more you ignore me, the closer I get. You're wasting your time. Yeah. The insanity continues, we, as you said. Yeah. And we just, we, we keep ignoring all of this. We just keep ignoring all of this. Uh, Democrats keep ignoring all of this, as far as I'm concerned. They are not... Uh, They're not running on this. No, they should. The media isn't covering it. They're so. running from this. I mean, they have been running, you know, from this, from class warfare, from all of the things that, uh, you know, that I think can or should get them elected, particularly in 2018. Yeah, it seems like those would be winning winning subjects to And there's going to be a lot of folks in 2018... Uh, asking uh, for your support for uh, the candidates, the parties, as usual. I know already everyone is asking you for your support before the end of the year, all of the uh, nonprofit organizations out there. Uh, I just want to say uh, thanks uh, to those who are stepping up. I've mentioned uh, several times this is a critical moment for the broadcast as we move forward and figure out uh, if we can uh, continue into 2018 and if so, for how long. So for the, all of those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate in recent days to become active uh, supporters, either one-time donations, but uh, uh, a number of you have signed up for regular monthly subscriptions. Your support is greatly appreciated right now. I know it's Christmas, uh, but it's greatly appreciated at bradblog.com slash donate. So thank you uh, to those of you who have done so already. Uh, okay, and I think that's it. Can we get out? I think we can get out. My thanks, yeah? Yes. Yeah, okay. My thanks to Desi Toyin, our producer, uh, to Spencer Piston of Boston University, my guest today, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site. Uh, in any event, wherever you get it, we hope you'll leave us a good review. makes it a little bit easier for everyone else to find us as well. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.